As I've been reflecting this week and our weeks past, I think it's interesting how often we forget and and also how quickly we forget things. How that which is something that may be exciting today might not be so exciting tomorrow. How often and how quickly we become complacent. How often we get bored with things that we once loved. How we see it in society all around us. How quick it is that the next new thing comes out and everybody has to have it. Even though the one that they have isn't broken. And even though the new one isn't going to give them that much more of an advantage. But they get tired of it. How often we get bored with the things that we once loved. And then, and then it shifts, doesn't it? And then we're not just bored with it. We tend to despise it. In light of that new thing, the thing that we once loved is now despised. And though it's easy for us to pick on the materialism of our culture, and though uh, we probably have materialism living within our flesh, We all struggle with this in some fashion or another. Maybe it's not materialism for you, but how often do we cast off love and commands of Christ and willingly submit to our flesh? I'll give you an example of one that maybe touches a little closer to home. Zoom. When when this quarantine first started, how happy was everybody to go on Zoom and to be able to have this tool. How happy are you now with Zoom? Are you still excited because at least we can see one another's faces? Or are we going, you know what? That was, that was a blessing then, but it's just bondage now. I'm just stuck in front of this screen. You see what I mean? How quickly it is. It hasn't even been a year. Not even one year. And still, we grumble and we complain. Kind of like who? Kind of like the Israelites in the wilderness. Once we loved it, once we sought to see each other, and now we consider that once was blessing that we're using even now called Zoom as bondage. This isn't Zoom's fault. This is something inherent within us. Just like when we were talking with a brother David, and he said that it's the problem that's going on all across the country with people and in relationships. It's, it's not this situation's fault. It's our fault. It's our heart. God didn't say, be holy as I am holy. Whenever things are going really good for you. Whenever you're getting everything that your heart desires. So what is the remedy to this that we so often fail in, in a variety of ways? We need to adore the triune God. We need to adore him. We need to be captivated with him. 
and not putting our trust in other things and not looking for what we don't have, but looking at what we do have. And I could tell you guys, I know this, this may be a struggle for some of you, this quarantine. And I'm not saying that it's the easiest thing for me, but having been locked up and on a real lockdown with bars and, and cells and keys and being told when you get to do what you get to do, if you get to do anything at all, and being given two meals a day. This is a cakewalk. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It matters who our God is. Who is our God? Let us adore him. And let us love him. And let us not leave our first love. For even this that, he's, that, that we're in right now. Is in some shape or fashion a gift from his hand. I think it's fitting for us at this time to go back over and do a review of Ephesians because what do we see Paul talking about in Ephesians 1.3? He's adoring God and he's praising God. And he's also telling us the blessings that we have, why we too should be caught up to heaven as it were, praising him, glorifying him and adoring him. As we get back into our study of Ephesians, what I want for us to do this afternoon is just give a brief kind of general overview of Ephesians, of what we studied so far, and so that we can start to get our minds back around where, where we are in the text so that we can progress forward and keep moving through this book. I'm not going to be going in, obviously, into as much detail as we have been going in as we've been studying this, for there's not enough time. But all of those sermons are available online, on YouTube, or on our website. And if you wanted to dig a little bit deeper into something, feel free to. But that's not what we're doing here. What we're doing here is giving that review of going back, all right, how do we reorient our focus, not just on the book of Ephesians, which we need, which is good, but on adoring our God. On adoring our God. And so, you'll recall, Ephesians has how many chapters? Seven? Five? Somewhere in between? Yeah, somewhere in between. Six chapters. And you remember, it splits up really nicely, doesn't it? You've got the first three chapters, which is called the high calling of the church, or you could call it doctrine. What we would know as the teaching, the doctrine, the calling, what we were, what we are, what we're to be. And then chapters four through six. Why don't we go ahead and just look at that? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter four. And you'll notice on Ephesians three twenty, he ends with this, this beautiful doxology Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now look at 4.1. Therefore, I 
the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You see what Paul did right there is he just took three chapters of doctrine and then kind of like as a funnel, as it were, have you ever seen, you know, those, uh, they advertise for these pressure washers that aren't really pressure washers. They're just nozzles that you hook onto your hose and they show how it can clean all this stuff off on the side of your house and on your car, like a pressure washer would. Well, what are they doing with that? They're, they're taking, you've got your hose, say your hose is this big. And what they're doing is they're funneling it down to something smaller so that it propels it, so that it shoots it out. That's what Paul's doing right here. He's taking this doctrine and he's throwing it through a funnel so that it takes off now. Okay, now that, now that you're rooted and grounded in this doctrine, now that you've exp- had this explained to you, now let's live it. Let's apply it for the glory of Christ. And so chapters four through six are the high conduct of the church or the duty. And if we understand chapters one through three, rightly, especially verses three to 14 of chapter one, then we won't look at this duty as something that we're begrudgingly doing, dragging our feet. It's not going to be like that. It's not gonna be like, oh, great. I have to, oh yeah, I wanted to do this, but I forgot I'm a Christian, so I can't. No, it's our great delight. Because our hearts have been renewed. Our hearts have been reborn. And now we have new eyes. We have new affections, new desires. Yeah, there's a battle raging on. But our greatest delight is fellowship with our God. And so whatever the cost is, we are willing to put it to death. Put to death anything that comes in and tries to usurp could control or take away from that communion that we will have with our gracious and loving heavenly father. Because remember, what is this? This is a battle for affections. This is the battle for desires. I've said it again. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Why is it that none of us eat horse manure sandwiches? Because you have no desire for it. Cause it's gross. Cause it's disgusting. And until we begin to see sin as horse manure sandwiches, we're going to be tempted away. Until we begin to see it for what it is, we're going to be tempted away. We have to think of sin as some glittery spray painted horse manure sandwich. It might look nice and shiny, but it's gross and it's disgusting in comparison, especially in comparison with our glorious and beautiful God. Now, let's go back to chapter one. And so we're going to hone in on this section here that we've been looking at, actually the broader section of it, one through 14. One through 14. So you remember there is this introduction, this salutation in verses one and two. And then verses three to 14 split up into three, into three different aspects of the triune God, three different focuses. You have God, the father, you have God, the son, and you have God, the spirit. Now look, 
in verses three to six, you see it right there. Three to six, God, the father. And then it transitions right at the end into the beloved where it says in him. Verse seven. Now it's transitioning from father to son. And notice this whole thing is Christ saturated. We, we can't neglect or escape noticing that. But then from seven to 12 is another one. This is the sun, this section on the sun. And then 13 and 14, the section on the spirit. And one also thing that one also grammatical construction that you can note that helps you see how this breaks up. Look at verse six to the praise of the glory. Now look at the end of verse 12 to the praise of his glory. Now look at verse 14, right at the end to the praise of his glory. So for those of you that are with us in our hermeneutics class, you'll notice that there's some linguistic distinctiveness going on here. This is the same phrase being repeated. Why is it being repeated? And why is it right at the end? Why is it transitioning like this? These are questions that when we come to, we want to ask and we want to answer. But for now, it's sufficient for us to notice that it's breaking this up into three sections and causing a transition from the father to the son, to the spirit. And as you recall, each person of the Trinity, while having one will, one single will for all three persons, because there's one God, one essence, the will is tied to the essence or to the nature, to the being. Remember Christ had two wills because he had two natures, human and divine. We have one will, although sometimes it doesn't feel like it, does it? But we do. We need to remember that even though there's one will in God and they're all working towards the same goal, salvation, each person is functioning differently. It was not the father that died on the cross. It was the son that died on the cross. And so we need to keep these things in our mind. And what we're looking at here in verses three to six, what we've been studying week after week word by word, phrase by phrase is the father's salvific plan. The father's salvific plan. He who laid this all out, who made all of these decisions before time. Now we know in verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, we know that apostle means sent one. And then we use that illustration of a ship carrying cargo, right? Paul is that ship carrying cargo for the beneficent uh, for, for the benefit of us who are in Christ specifically though, to those who are in Ephesus. And it was by God's will that he do that. And he writes to the saints. Now remember if you think of saint, I think in some dictionaries, if you even look it up, it'll talk about someone that lived a really good life and that was canonized by the church after they died. That is completely foreign to the scripture. There's no hint of that. Saints are evil, wicked, God-hating sinners that have been saved, that have been regenerated, that have been justified by the work of Jesus Christ, according to the foreknowledge of God and the application of the spirit, that now pursue holiness because they have new affections and new desires. It's not the other way around. It's not that 
We're so good. But it's that God's so good and God's so gracious and Christ's work was perfect. But it's to the saints, literally the holy ones, those that have been set apart. And we recognize that word faithful is kind of better translated believers. It's very similar. Faithful, believing, a similar connotation. But I think what Paul's getting across here is these holy ones, the ones who are believers in Christ Jesus. And then we notice this change. Verse two, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what does he say in verse three? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. You remember, we talked about a couple of times when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, and then also as we've been going through Ephesians, the fourfold fatherhood of God. The four different ways in which God is regarded as Father in Scripture. You guys remember those? Well, the first one is, He is Father by means of eternal generation. The son, there's a unique father son relationship between God, the father and God, the son. So much so that Jesus never says our father with regard to him being in the midst of the hour. When Jesus does say our father, he does it. What? When you pray, you pray like this, our father. But Jesus can't pray that prayer, right? Because he, he's not a sinner, so he can't pray, forgive us our debts or these sins. And even when he goes to ascend in the gospel of John, he says, I must go to your father and my father. He makes sure there's a clear distinction. Paul even makes sure that there's a distinction here, as you'll notice. Grace to you and peace from God, our father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he switches it in verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we remember that grace is that which we don't deserve. And peace also is something that, that we don't deserve because we, we actually were the hostile ones. We were the rebellious ones. And God has offered us terms of peace. But then Paul gets into this, this, this praise of God, this adoration of God. And he begins looking at the Father. In verse 3, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Have we become kind of immune to that? Is that not as exciting as it once was? Kind of like Zoom how it was really exciting that first weekend. And now it's just kind of like, uh, is this passage of scripture and this opportunity that we have to adore God? Is it something that we've become complacent in? Not that we would say anything wrong or or bad against God, but it's just, that same kind of experience isn't what it used to be. It's not so for Paul. 
And it shouldn't be for us. It should be the area of our heart's content and our focus and our desire. Because think about it. We have been saved from sin, from punishment. Another interesting fact, you know, when we talk about salvation, I could talk about, you know, being saved and things like that. How, how is that normally done? If, if I were to say, so tell me, you know, how is a person saved? What would you say? Well, you have to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'd be right. But when Paul answers this question for the Ephesians, that's not what he says, is it? What does he say? He starts with election. He starts before time. In fact, it's not until really we we get to all the way down at the end of this section. When he talks about verse 12, kind of we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. But then in 13, in him, you also, after listening to this message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, also having also believed you were sealed. So when he's talking about the father, he's not saying, all right, this is what you need to do. You you need to believe in this, which is true. But Paul goes much deeper. He's going underneath of it all. And we have every spiritual blessing. Who's the one that applies these blessings? It's the spirit of God. It's the spirit of God. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I just encourage you once more, if you haven't already, go through Ephesians, go through the whole of the New Testament, all the epistles, and look at every time it says in Christ, in Christ, and pick a color and highlight that in him, in whom, in Christ, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. This is what is central to our life. We're not saved apart from Christ. We're saved in Christ. Our blessings are found in Christ, in the heavenlies. And it's every spiritual blessing. God has been so kind and so gracious to us rebels. He could have saved us and not given us a seat at the table. He could have saved us and said, I'm not going to adopt you, but I'm going to make sure. He could have had tears in heaven, different tears, first, second, third, fourth, and said, you're going to be down there. He could have just thrown us all in hell. And any of that, God would still be good and he'd still be gracious. And we forget that because so much of our world focuses around us. And we even call it our world. But the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. This all belongs to him. And in his grace and in his kindness and in his mercy, he's to be adored. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Paul gets into that in verse four. Just as he chose us, 
He elected us. This is where we get the word election from. He elected us. Not outside of Christ, not apart from Christ. But he elected us in Christ. Before the foundation of the world. Before time. Before even the beginnings were planted. So think about this. When you start your Bible in a year and you open it up to Genesis 1-1 and you start reading. And it says, in the beginning God created. If you're in Christ, before verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis... He had chosen you for salvation. He had chosen you for adoption. He had chosen you to be holy and blameless. He had chosen you to bring him honor and glory. He had chosen you to be a recipient of grace and mercy. He had chosen you. He had set his love upon you and chose you so that at the proper time you would turn from your sin and trust in his son. This is just mind-blowing and astonishing. And if you recall, the idea behind he chose is with interest for oneself. He didn't primarily choose us for the benefit that it would be for us. And we know that he didn't choose us because of anything good within us. We know that Romans talks about that. We know that Jacob and Esau, before there was even one work done, God's decision had already been made up. But even here, he didn't even choose us primarily for us. You remember we studied for his namesake, for his namesake. I will do this for my namesake, Yahweh says. That's what's going on here. Just as he chose For himself. That's the idea of the verb. For himself. There it is right there. He chose us. For himself. So the father chose us. For himself. In Christ. Before the foundation of the world. To the end. That. Is a good way to look at that. For the goal that. That we would be holy. And blameless. Before him. Now you remember that the idea behind this word before him, before, it's not the normal usage of the word before. It carries this idea of special presence. I think it's when uh, Paul went before the king, he's right before him. And when I was explaining this to you, I think I even walked out in front of the pulpit. And said, as I'm standing before you, but I can't do that right now because I'm not before you in the same way. So it wouldn't communicate the same idea. But just as if you have someone in your house with you, if you turn to them and they are before you, that's what this is. He chose us for himself in Christ before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1-1, that we would be holy And blameless, that we would be separate, that we would be other, that we would be different and without blame. In his presence, 
And he did this in love. He did this in love. We have to, we have to remember this, that Christ did not die to make us lovable. Christ died for his own, those that the father had given him because that was his mission that he chose to undertake because the father already loved us before the foundation of the world. That's it. That's why Christ came to bring honor and glory to the father and to redeem a specific set of people only known within the Trinity. And so Christ doesn't die to make us lovable and not everyone is loved in the same way. We recognize that God is a gracious God. If you had any chance to go outside yesterday, you recognize that it was a beautiful day. The sun was shining. The people were outside enjoying the heat of the sun, smelling the freshness of the air. And just last week it was raining. So everything's green and and beautiful, and then the multicolored of the plants. But notice that most people in this area curse God. They hate him. And at best, they ignore him, which is a sign of hate. Yet still, he pours forth his grace and his benevolent love upon his creatures. That's not this love. It's not less than that, but it is far more than that. This love that we're looking at in Ephesians is a special covenant love. Kind of like you would see in the Old Testament, loving kindness, the loving kindness of the Lord. It's that loyal covenant keeping love. If he had just told us that, that should be enough for him, us to adore and worship him and not lose interest for a thousand generations. That the God of heaven and earth, indeed of the universe, that is inside and outside time, in every place, in the same, in the all over, is imminent everywhere, is eternal, loves me. And not based upon anything that I've done or could do. Doesn't that just drive you to want to worship? No one will ever love you that much. You know, it's mother's day today. And oftentimes you see the tenderness of a mother and her child. You see that used in scripture in the old Testament. God speaks of that with his tenderness. Paul uses that to speak of his tenderness, but not even the love that a mother has for her child compares with the love that God has in degree and extent for his own children. And we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Having predestined us, you remember that was a participle in verse five, having predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. 
You remember we looked at this term predestined. We spent a good deal of time here. If this is one of those words that you struggle with, I'd encourage you to listen in more detail to the other sermons. But here's the thing. What are we talking about here? We're talking about this electing work that the father has done before the foundation of the world. So we, we haven't even really stepped into time yet. This is just the plan. This is just the blueprints. That's all this is at this point. It doesn't even involve us yet as we know ourselves. It only involves us insofar as God knows us with the foreknowledge of God and the love relationship that he's had with us because he is outside of time. And so he's very much in one piece of time and another piece of time at the same time, which doesn't even sound right saying because we kind of stretch for words as we try to explain that. But he has predestined us to adoption. You remember predestining is marking it out, laying out those boundaries, having predetermined our paths and our lives. Here's the terrifying aspect of predestination. Predestination generally has two branches to it, right? Election and reprobation. Election and reprobation. What Paul's talking about here is the election branch of that. How everything is found in Christ. And what he's left out in this section that he carries over in other passages of, of scripture. You see Romans 9 or Peter takes over also in Second Peter. Is those who have been predestined for damnation unto the praise of his glory. Now we can't know all the ins and outs of that. But it should terrify us. It should terrify us to know that God has at his seemingly arbitrary will, the option of sending one person to heaven or one person to hell. He doesn't do it unjustly. He does it justly because the truth of it is we all deserve hell. So if we want to look at, well, that's not fair. If we want to really go down that pathway of that's not fair. It's not fair with respect to us receiving salvation. That's what's not fair. It's not fair that Christ is able to pay our penalty. That's not fair. That's mercy. That's grace. That's love. So this should cause us to remain humble, especially when we come to scriptures and not to flaunt our mind and our preconceptions and our finitude against the one who is infinite, but also as we're dealing with one another in the church and even those outside the church, how we need to be compassionate, how we need to be humble, how we need to be caring and gracious. This salvation is not your birthright. Jesus had special words for people that thought salvation was their birthright. When they said, we're, seeds, we're, we're, we're descendants of Abraham. Jesus had kind words for them, didn't he? Yeah, he did. They didn't receive them as kind words, though. 
but he told them the truth. Your father is the devil. You are children of the devil. And so we can't become proud and conceited thinking that this is our birthright. It is true that Christ has given us the right to be called children of God, but not by our birth, by Christ's meritorious work, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, not by our own. How this should cause us to cultivate a humility where we consider others better than ourselves. He predestined us to adoption. Now you remember this word adoption means basically the same thing that we have today. When you go and you adopt a kid, you can go and you adopt someone. And as we recall, it's not the children that say, hey, you know what? Uh, I want to be adopted by these people. Why don't you give me a phone book? I'm going to look through and I'm going to pick the people I want to adopt me. No, the adoption, it's always chosen by the parents when there's a choice involved, right? They get to make that final decision. It's the one doing the adopting that makes the decision. The same thing that we see here. It's the father that's making this decision. And if you recall, he's adopted us as sons. And we went over, you, you could look at this and you go, well, what about sons and daughters? As some translations are coming out and saying, and again, the problem with that, the problem with that is that now you have two classes of Christians because we believe in what literal grammatical, historical hermeneutic, right? And so what did these words mean at the time when they were written and what were they, what was Paul, the author, what was his intent in communicating to the audience, the Ephesians about what he's saying about what God has done. Adoption to sons. And the word actually is a cognate. It it has similar root to son. It's to sonship. Because that's the highest ranking. You could adopt daughters, but they didn't have the same status as if you adopted a son. And so Paul is saying, whether you're Greek, whether you're Jew, whether you're slave, whether you're free, whether you're male, whether you're female, if you're in Christ, you have been adopted into the highest status possible. How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel to know that the Lord of heaven and earth has adopted you to the highest status possible. That he's brought you into his family to make you an heir. That you are an heir and co-heir with Christ of this salvation. Does joy well up within you? Does thankfulness well up within you? Maybe a little bit of, you know, disgust at the way that maybe you've been conducting yourself lately, but but more so joy, more so astonishment. Hopefully not apathy. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in his presence before him in love, having predestined us 
to sonship, adoption as sons, through Christ, our elder brother, to himself. Isn't this whole section just ring of Romans 11? Every time I read through this, it just always pops in my head. I just, I read this and I, and I just think, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And as you recall in Ephesians one, the fact that we have been adopted isn't just like a, here you go. You've been adopted. Uh, It was nice to see you. You go ahead and take that and cash that as you see fit. No, we've been brought into a different family. So we have all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities associated with that family. Do we not? You have a new name. You think about some of these celebrities or some of the children of these celebrities or of these politicians or even some pastors. When they go out, and they commit some kind of crime or indecency or something unethical. It's blasted all over the place. And who receives shame for that? Is it just the one who committed that act? Or is it also the parents because of the standing of those parents? It's also the parents. It comes on the whole family, does it not? But when there is a blessing to be shared in a loving family, it comes on the whole family, does it not? There is a unity, a new unity that we have now with this God that he's brought us in. He has made us his children. He's made us up to the level of sonship and called us to be holy and blameless before him, to walk as he walked, to to walk in a way that that your children would think of your young children and how, as you're teaching them and training them when they do something good, what do they say? Mommy, look, daddy, look. And they want to show you that they did it. And what do you do? You get so excited. Good job. You did it. Hey, good job. And then what's the other kids say? Hey, wait, look at me too. They live for your approval. They live for your smile. We too are to receive this faith as little children, especially when it's speaking in the context of adoption as sons. What does that imply? That we are part of this family, that we're children. So, oh, we need to live for our father's smile. We need to recognize that above anything else, That's what I'm living for. And so when we come to these forks in the road, when we have these decisions to make and we're sitting there going, well, is this technically sin? I mean, is this, this, this might not be sin. I mean, I'm sure that there's a way that this would not be sin, that I could do this and it would be okay. I mean, what if I'm doing it for the greater good? Can't I do something that's maybe not the best as I'm through the means If I'm going toward this really good end, I mean, this could help a lot of people. 
When you understand your adoption, all of that thinking is gone. Because the one thing you're asking yourself is, will this cause my father to smile upon me? That's it. Will my father be pleased with me if I do this? And the beautiful thing is you can ask him. You have access to him by means of his spirit and his word. And so you can pause in those moments and say, Father, help me to please you. Which way should I go to please you? And then we're no longer trying to justify ourselves. Because we're not focused on the sin. We're focused on God. We're focused on our Father. And how we can be pleasing to Him. Notice again that this is never apart from Christ. He predestined us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then back to Himself. It's through Christ. It's in Christ. It's one of the beautiful things about the gospel is when Christ goes unto his baptism, you remember his baptism is a baptism of what? A baptism of repentance. That should just cause us to kind of pull our hair out and go, what? Christ, the Messiah, Yahweh in the flesh, a baptism of repentance? No, no, just like John the Baptist did. No, no, no. And how does Christ respond to him? Permit it, what? At this time, for it is necessary to do what? To fulfill all righteousness. We need to understand that because what Christ and think, think family here, think adoption, think older brother, think, think adopted us as sons through Christ, that we are in Christ. What we need to understand is that Christ was living out the righteousness that we failed to keep. Every single aspect of the law, he completed and he fulfilled And I'm not just talking external. That's not what the Bible says. It was from the heart. And in order to do that, he spent much time in prayer, constantly praying to his father, sometimes all night long, sometimes rising early when he was tired, when he wasn't tired, spending time in prayer. Why? Because in order for him to do that, The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Interesting thing about that. When you read through in the Old Testament, when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, or strength, that word for strength is the word for very. V-E-R-Y. It's technically not a noun. All your muchness. The idea behind it is with everything you have, all your excess, all your everything. And so Christ, not one foul thought, not one deviant thought, not one good thought improperly placed. 
and then love your neighbor as yourself. The way he cared for each person, the way he cared for us and still cares for us. He lived out all of that righteousness. And so what he should have received on that day was well done. My good and faithful slave enter into the joy of your master and right up to heaven because the wages of sin is death. But we see something completely different, don't we? He was cursed. Black gloom and darkness surrounded him. Separation and solitariness. Alone. In his most trying hour. When those who swore allegiance to him. Unto death. Departed him. He went to that cross. As the Passover sacrificial lamb. He went to that cross. Completely pure, without blemish, holy and blameless. Without any hint or stain of impropriety whatsoever. And if you're in Christ, he drank your hell. He consumed it. In his flesh, on that tree. He became a curse. So that we through him, by turning from our sins and trusting in Christ, That we could find forgiveness. It's an amazing thing to consider, you know. I was talking with with my kids. We're going through Pilgrim's Progress. Talking about the burden. Christian's burden on his back. Talking about the girls and their burden. And it's just so astounding to me to think about. When I talk to my kids about giving their burden to Christ. How awkward is that? Have we ever really thought through that? How awkward is that? That we are to come to Christ with all of our sin. All of it. And only you know the depth of your depravity. Other than God, but on a human level, only you know. And we we come to him and we, this is what we offer him. Here's all my sin. That's what we give him. That's what he took on the cross. It just doesn't seem right, does it? That we give him all of this sin. And what does he give us? Robes of righteousness. Here. And so while he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't cry that out. Instead, we hear, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Because we are clothed in Christ, because we have been adopted as sons through Christ on the basis of his work, he has made us acceptable to God. We could not have stood before him. And we could not have stood before him holy and blameless had we not been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because as Christ had to obey, there is a premium that we must pay to get into heaven, which is righteousness, positive righteousness. And at the same time, we can't be in debt. We can't have any sin. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him 
God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He takes all of our sin. We're up to zero. He gives us all his righteousness. Now we have that premium to pay. Credited on our account because of what Christ has done. We have been adopted. And remember, adoption is just the standing. There nothing happens internally like justification. You've been declared legally righteous. Now you have been declared legally God's child through Jesus Christ to the father. And you just think, why, why would you do all this? Why would you go to all this trouble? When I, all I did was hate you and curse you and at best ignore you at best. And he tells us at the end of verse five, according to the kind intention, according to the good pleasure of his will, God was well pleased to crush his son so that we could go free. We can't ever let this, we can't ever let, let the focus and the joy of this and the glory and the weightiness of this become to us like what meeting over zoom has become for some. Or you fill in the blank. That new toy that's now old has become for some. This is not one of those timed truths that expires. This is a timeless truth. This is a beautiful reality. This is the height and epitome of grace and glory that we don't deserve. This is the fuel behind us that urges us on to press on still more and pursue that holy life. Not for holiness's sake, but for Christ's sake, for the joy of our father, for his smile shining upon us. So the decisions we make, we would make knowing, okay, is this going to be pleasing to my father? The one who at great cost to himself has brought me into his family because he was pleased to do so according to the good pleasure of his will. And then he gives us the goal here in verse six, which we'll be looking at in more detail in the weeks to come. The goal that we would be to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Now notice his grace is here in verse six. It's also repeated in verse seven as he transitions into Christ, but notice that it, it drops off. And it's not in to the praise of his glory in verse 12 and verse 14. Why is that? Well, we'll have to stick around and find out. It is to the praise of the glory of his grace, the father's grace, which the father, he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. You'll notice in your Bibles, beloved is capitalized because that's talking about a person. That's talking about Christ. So I hope that this has been helpful for us to try and reorient and wrap our minds back around what's going on from the big picture of Ephesians as a whole, narrowing down to this section here, this, this Trinitarian beautiful section from three to 14, all the way down to the father's salvific plan 
here in verses three to six. And my hope and joy is that we we would not lose sight of this in our day-to-day lives. With all that the Lord has been teaching us, the way he's held on to us and he continues to grow us, that we would not lose sight that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And though we may not enjoy some of the things that are happening around us, I pray that we still find joy in Christ. I pray that we still find joy in Christ and that we reflect and that we focus and that we meditate on the fact that the one who has chosen us for salvation chose us because he loved us and he's working all things together for our good. And he has given us an inheritance that we don't deserve, but he's guarding over it for us. How should we live in light of this? How then do we live? Well, we don't live for ourselves, right? We don't live for ourselves. We live for him who lived for us, who died for us, who rose again for us and is seated at the right hand of the father who intercedes for us. We live for him. We live for his father, the father that here chose us, that blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That chose us before the foundation of the world. That ordered all things so that we would come to this moment in time where we would be justified, where we would be adopted as his children, even as his sons to the highest ranking order through Christ to this one that does this for his good pleasure. What a beautiful glimpse of the heart of God so that we would be to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely uncoerced bestowed on us in the one who is beloved. Let us glorify this great God who is now unto us, our father. Father, we do thank you and we do praise you that you are so good and so gracious to us that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Let us not lose sight. Let us not lose focus of these truths, but let us live to the praise of the glory of your grace. Let us bring you honor and glorify your great name in Christ. Amen.